M. Audiobooks and Square Books in Oxford, an independent bookstore offering more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and bookseller recommendations. More at Libro.fm. It's 8.30 on Thursday, November 29th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we'll hear from both parties on what's next for politics in the state. Then we'll hear from cigarette tax advocates on their plans for a smoke-free Mississippi. And in our book club, meet author Elliot Ackerman on his new book, Waiting for Eden. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. political parties are laying plans for the future. On the heels of a historic election and runoff that brought out record numbers of voters and resulted in the state's first woman elected to national office, many question what's next. Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith is back in Washington to complete the remaining two terms in the Senate seat vacated by, or two, two years rather, uh, in the Senate seat vacated by retired Senator Thad Cochran. Her opponent, former Secretary of Agriculture Mike Espy, is moving on from a successful grassroots campaign. Now each party will strategize on moving forward with mobilizing Mississippians. Bobby Moak is chairman of the Mississippi Democratic Party. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they're impressed with voter turnout. I think there's a lot of opportunity after looking at the numbers from last night. Um, Everyone knew that SB had an uphill climb in the state, no matter who the opponent uh, may have been on the Republican side. He garnered over 46% of the vote, uh, the highest number, uh, highest percentage that a Democrat has seen in quite a while in in a federal election. The numbers were good. We had a historic high on November the 6th of people coming out to vote in the midterm at a little north of 900,000. Yesterday, we had... 876,000 people at least vote. That is only a very small percentage of slippage from the November 6th elections, and Democrats outperformed their November numbers to the tune of about 101 to 103 percent. So you're talking about total voters? Total voters. Total voters were 900,000, let's say, November the 6th. Yesterday it was about 876. And Democrats, uh, the amount of Democrat votes in November the 6th, we outperformed that number 101%. Some are surprised that he did get over 400,000 votes. Would you attribute some of that to what some are calling the missteps of Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith's remarks about public hanging and, and then the photo being released of her in Confederate regalia and remarks that she made about voter suppression in a joking fashion, she said? Yeah, maybe. I don't want to take anything away from our candidate. I don't want to take anything away from all the different groups who are working really, really hard uh, to turn out voters. Um, We all knew what the universe was of the number of folks that we needed to get out and vote. And we, we just about turned those people out. You know, the remarks that she made, uh, unfortunately, is something that's going to stick with our state for a while. Uh, It's going to um, 
probably stick with her for a while and, and may define uh, may define uh, her campaign. That'll be one thing that people talk about when they talk about this election. So I'm, I'm just going to give full credit to uh, to the SB campaign and to all the folks who are out there working hard, the volunteers uh, and staff, uh, to get those votes out. What was the goal for you? Well, we we were kind of calculating if we had a 900,000 person turnout again, the same way that uh, that we did November the sixth. So, uh, with the number of votes that he got, we 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 almost uh, hit the goal of where we what we thought it would take to win. And uh, but look, uh, our Republican friends did a good job of turning out votes too. They turned out about 87 percent of their total numbers that were cast on November the 6th. In a statement from the uh, Republican uh, Party chair, uh, he mentioned that the Democrats mounted a a very good um, effort. Do you see that progressing among the Democratic Party? Uh, I I do. I do. And that's why yesterday's numbers uh, give me a lot of reason for hope. Both camps uh, worked really hard to turn out their voters. But we all know there's a large number of people who do not vote during midterm elections, but they do vote during gubernatorial years. They do vote during presidential elections. We all fight to get those people to the vol- to the polls for us every time. It will be easier to get them to the polls for the 2019 election year, and we think more of those people uh, will be voting the Democratic ticket than the other side, and so that gives us a lot of hope for 2019, uh, a lot of hope because because we have an attorney general, Jim Hood, who has said he's going to run for governor. Uh, we've got viable candidates, just like we had viable candidates in every one of these federal elections. We have viable candidates who are getting ready to run for 2019, I'm really excited about that, from constable all the way to governor. And do you know what it's going to take to bring more Democrats into the camp? Well, I think it's going to take uh, doing exactly what we were doing during this federal election cycle. We we increased uh, our numbers so much during this cycle. I mean, in in twenty in twenty fourteen, we only had about six hundred thousand people vote during a midterm. Uh, now Mississippi is hitting a 900,000 number, and that's because everybody is engaged and everybody's working to, to turn out voters. So what we're going to do is continue doing what we're doing, continue to build our base, and we feel really, really good about that going into 2019. President Trump came the day before. Yeah. Do you think that energized the base to the point that people who maybe were on the fence decided to go ahead and vote for Hyde Smith? We looked at it this way. You've got a red little state like Mississippi, and you have to bring in the President of the United States, um, one of the top members of the U.S. Senate, and the Vice President just to save this election. Um, maybe that visit helped, uh, helped turn out some Republicans who weren't going to normally turn out. Uh, maybe it got them back to the polls. I don't know. But I think what it also did was it energized a portion of the Democratic base who maybe weren't going to turn out, who also 
who also said, you know, I think I'll just make my way onto the polls today. So I'm not sure how much that helped. Maybe there's some way you can figure out those numbers. But what, whatever that may be and however that may fall, you have to really say, my goodness, you, you mean Air Force One had to land in Tupelo and Biloxi just to save this election in little red state Mississippi. Something is going on. And I think that portends a good election year for Democrats in 2019. Bobby Moak is chairman of the Mississippi Democratic Party. Uh, hold on. Oh, Mississippi GOP chair Lucian Smith tells our Desiree Frazier his party is confident they will remain the dominant party. You know, we were very pleased with the results. Um, uh, it was it proved not to be as tight as people expected it to be. I mean, we're it was consistent with where we had tracked it about a, an eight or nine point race. Um, but turnout was way up. And I don't think that's uh, any surprise. People were paying close attention to this. We had built at the Mississippi Republican Party over the course of the last uh, three or four months the largest data-driven uh, get-out-the-vote program that we've ever had. Uh, we made uh, over a million and a half voter contacts between August 1st uh, and the runoff election. 600,000 uh, and change were made after the runoff election, specifically for, for Cindy had Smith. And so I think the we had a turnout machine that proved to be very effective. But Secretary Espy ran a great campaign, uh, and they had a great program also to get, uh, get voters back out. Uh, and I think you saw it in the results. Uh, that was one thing I noticed in your statement after the race. You mentioned that the Democrats really uh, did a good job. They've been dormant um, for some years in the state, and to see them pull together a grassroots operation that was able to do as well, even when uh, state legislator David Barrier ran, you saw a swell of grassroots um, in that operation to try and unseat uh, Republican U.S. Senator Roger Wicker. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Democrats are starting to, uh, to starting to get organized in a way that they really haven't been the last five to ten years, uh, and we're we're aware of that, uh, and we're doing everything we can to make sure that the Republican Party, you know, remains the dominant party in the state. We've got a structural advantage because most people. Uh, in Mississippi, want the kind of policy that comes out of a Republican administration, um, but we also we're very cognizant of the fact that we've got to keep out organizing, out working, uh, out raising the Democrats, and so uh, we're working day in and day out to make sure that that happens. And I think you saw it in in this race. The party has now um, brought in the first woman to represent the state in Congress, uh, still representation for minorities is lacking in your party. What are you going to do about that? We're going to keep, uh, you know, it's, that is a major priority of mine. I think it's one of the most important things the Republican Party can do uh, over the course of the next five to ten years uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I don't think that it is a good thing uh, to have two uh, parties that are increasingly racially segregated. Uh, and so we're going to keep reaching out uh, to people of color in the state of Mississippi. Uh, we've worked uh, closely with a group called E3 Vanguard uh, that does that. It's composed of conservatives of color and people who are uh, curious about the Republican Party and the policies that uh, come from the, the right side of the aisle. And we're going to keep uh, reaching out to them. You know, I'm, I'm of the view that Republican policies are best for all Mississippians. Uh, and we're going to point to policies that I think uh, have a, a particular uh, or of particular interest to people of color. You know, the one that that I think is 
is so important uh, is school choice. You know, that's something that the Republicans have really uh, led on. I view it truthfully as, as, as essentially a civil rights issue. You look at the DNF schools in Mississippi uh, are overwhelmingly African American. You know, the the D schools, and these are this is old data, but the uh, the D schools in Mississippi uh, are over eighty percent African American. The F schools in Mississippi get closer to ninety percent African American, and people in those districts who have the funds to send their children to private schools are able to do that. Um, and, and I think I'd like to see us expand school choice to, so that everybody, regardless of background or income level, has access to the school of their choice. And I think the, the closer we can get to that, uh, the better it'll be for all Mississippians. Now, you will be challenged by her remarks on public hanging, uh, suppression of the vote, and uh, a photo of her in Confederate regalia, which upset a lot of people, both uh, black and white. Um, do you think that that helped energize um, Espy's campaign, ultimately? I think that certainly had an effect. I'm very glad that she apologized. I wish she'd done it sooner. Uh, And I think it's incumbent on her, and she knows this. Uh, And I think she made made it clear in her remarks last night. I I think she will be a senator for all Mississippians, but I think she she has a task, and I think she's she's up to it. I think a year from now she will have done it uh, to make sure that all Mississippians know she's looking out for the interests of everybody, uh, whether or not uh, you voted for uh, and whatever your, your background happens to be. Do you think that bringing in President Trump the day before the runoff helped to uh, motivate maybe some undecided voters or some that were sitting on the fence to come to the polls? I think it had some persuasion effect. You know, you get that close the night before an election. There, there aren't there's not that large of a persuadable universe. I, I think what the president's visit really did was reminded people there was an election. You know, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, regardless of. Uh, what party you come from, uh, it's it is it, it's a tough uh, day to have a runoff because most people, uh, unless you work in politics, you don't spend the week before that Tuesday thinking about politics. You're not focused on it. And I think having the president come in and do those two visits just reminded people, gosh, there's an election tomorrow. we got to remember to get out because that's – I'm confident that the majority of Mississippians uh, wanted a Republican to represent them in the Senate. Um, but it, it was our job to make sure that a majority of the people who showed up wanted a Republican to represent them in the Senate. And I think that's what the president helped make sure of. Democrats um, have expressed that because it, the race looked like it was going to be really, really tight, they needed the president to come in, which talks about how much that party has grown in terms of running a successful race. Yeah, you know, and it was it, it, it proved to not be nearly as tight of a race as a lot of people anticipated. I, I heard a, a commentator uh, on one of the more liberal television networks say, uh, you know, a nine point uh, margin is really a, a, a defeat for the Republicans. And what people and I disagree, because if you look back, the closest analog to this race is Roger uh, Wicker's race in 08, where he was appointed to fill a vacancy. Uh, and Roger uh, got about Uh, 55% of the vote in that election. Cindy got 54%. So she's tracking within a point of where Roger was uh, a decade ago. And I think, now obviously he did much better against David Beria, but that's after 10 years of being a statewide elected official, being in the Senate, uh, so that people know him better. And I I think if, if Cindy will be in a position... Uh, to to grow those numbers because she's essentially tracking where Roger was. Lucian Smith, chair of the Mississippi Republican Party, thank you so much for speaking with us and for your insights on this. Absolutely. Thanks, Desiree. 
In other news, a coalition of cigarette tax advocates is asking Mississippi legislators to invest in a healthier future. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. Up to my great-great-grandfather. Khalil Jackson is listing family members he's seen become chronically ill or pass away due to cigarette usage. The use of tobacco products remain the nation's number one cause of preventable death, according to the American Cancer Society. A senior student at St. Andrews, he says he hopes the use of cigarettes in his family stops with him. have used it and every single one of them has had a turn for the worst in terms of their health in one way or another. Catherine Bryant is with the American Heart Association, one of the 30-plus organizations part of the Invest in a Healthier Future coalition. Bryant says increasing tobacco taxes and investing in tobacco prevention will not only save lives in Mississippi, but save the state money. The state spends millions and millions of dollars every year on the effects of smoking-related illnesses, specifically amongst our Medicaid population. We also know that a $1.50 increase will bring $169 million of new revenue to the state. Glenn Bolger with Public Opinion Strategies says polling results show more than 70 percent of voters in the state support a cigarette tax increase. A lot of people would be surprised by the fact that 53 percent of smokers use this product and would obviously pay more. And one of the things that we've learned from smokers is it's their way of saying, please help me quit. If the price goes up, I'm much more likely to quit smoking, and if I don't, at least I'm going to cut back significantly. Governor Phil Bryant and legislative leaders declined to comment. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up in our book club, meet author Elliot Ackerman on his new book, Waiting for Eden. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This year, Mississippi Public Broadcasting is helping sponsor the 42nd Annual Chimneyville Arts and Crafts Festival, featuring 120 makers of fine arts and crafts. The preview party will be Thursday, November 29th, and the festival begins Friday, November 30th through Saturday, December 1st at the Mississippi Trademark in Jackson. For more information, log on to mscrafts.org. That's mscrafts.org. MPB listeners pay attention to quality. They look for quality in their work and their daily lives. If your business cares about quality customers, look to MPB. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting for more information. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Elliot Ackerman is a former White House fellow, Marine, and the author of award-winning novels, His Dark at the Crossing was a finalist for the National Book Award. His writings have appeared in Esquire, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times Magazine, among others. He served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. Ackerman's new book, Waiting for Eden, draws together an intersection of three star-crossed lives, bedridden soldier Eden Malcolm, his wife Mary, and their young daughter, whom he has never met. Narrated by a friend and fellow soldier who didn't make it back home, Eden's life begins to come full circle. Ackerman tells us more about his story of loyalty and betrayal. I had always grown up around books and writing. My mother is a novelist, so it seems somewhat intuitive to me. And I studied history and literature at school, but I also had this desire to go into the military and to serve. And so I did that first. And then when that time of my life was done, uh, I transitioned into, into being a writer. 
Your service in the military was much more than what an average serviceman or woman might experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to your writing? Well, how it relates to my writing is the years I was in the military were some of my most formative years. So that experience really just informs how I view the world and who I am and how I understand people and all of those things find their ways into my books. I served as a Marine Corps officer and came in in 2003 and served until 2011. And that just happened to be a number of years where there was you know, quite a bit going on in terms of the wars and what was occurring in the larger world. So that characterized my service. You're a decorated soldier. You led missions. I would assume some of them were dangerous missions. Yes. Could you leave all of that behind you or did you have to come back and write about it in novel form? Well, I wouldn't say that I've specifically written about it. You know, my books are not are not just veiled stories about my own experiences. In fact, really, none of them are my experiences. I think the specifics of the books are nothing that's happened to me. It's more, you know, the emotional core of the books are issues that I think about and wrestle with. And in some respects, those are informed by my military experiences. But most of my books, they're works of imagination. In Waiting for Eden, set the stage for us. Where is Eden when we first meet him? When you first meet Eden, he is in the burn ward of Brook Army Medical Center, which is in San Antonio, Texas. What's his situation? Well, Eden has the dubious distinction of being the most wounded man in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, if you think about it with advances in medical technology, makes him the most wounded man in the history of war. And he spent uh, three years in a somewhat catatonic state, and waiting at his bedside all that time has been his wife, Mary. And for the first time in those three years, she decides that she's going to go home and spend Christmas with her daughter. And when she does this, Eden, sensing that she's no longer with him, suffers an episode, which leads him to have a stroke. When he has that stroke, it reorders his mind. And for the first time, he becomes aware of his circumstances. And the entire novel basically takes place over the few days where Eden becomes aware of his circumstances and tries to say what he wants to now have happened to him. And the book, however, is narrated by his dead best friend who waits in sort of a, a purgatory state. And his friend is the one who's telling the story. But to understand the choice Eden's wife makes, you have to understand the relationship between not only Eden and his wife, but also the relationship with this unnamed narrator who is the friend. It sounds so complicated, so complex, and yet you write this book in under 200 pages. Was that the intent, to write a shorter book? Well, I think there's some books that really write you. And as I was working on this book, its story just became evident to me. It was going to be what it was going to be. The first person I gave the novel to read, read the book, came back to me and said as their first comment, well, Elliot, it just sort of is what it is, isn't it? Which I think meant the story is just the story. And those are the types of books I like to write. Novels that are not filled with complex, show-offy language, but books that are just a good, clean story. And I hope that's what this novel is. Your stories tend to be character-driven, plot-driven? I would say my, my books tend to be character-driven. They're about people and the motivations of people more than anything else. Who did you write the book for? Well, I dedicated the book to my mother. It is a book about grief. In many respects, that's a central theme of the book. And I think when we grieve, we always have this idea that grief is a transitory state. We put a lot of faith 
into this notion that if we grieve, we'll move through whatever troubles we're having and get to the other side where there's some type of healing. And oftentimes that doesn't occur. And when grief doesn't take us to that healing, we are just sort of left like the name of the novel implies. We're just left waiting. And since this book has come out, many people have asked me if the main character, this woman, Mary, who's waiting in the book, whether or not she's based on anyone. And I would say she's based on anyone who's ever waited for someone to come home. I have people in my life who waited. My mother is one of them, just like I think many of us in our lives have people who wait for us to move through our challenges. Waiting for Eden is the name of the book, and we've been speaking with its author, Elliot Ackerman. Thank you so much, Elliot. Great. Thank you for having me. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts, and at 10, it's MPB's all-new show, Autocorrect, and at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from Libro FM Audiobooks and Square Books in Oxford an independent bookstore offering more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and bookseller recommendations. More at Libro.fm.